Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Tuesday, January 9th, 2018. Happy New Year, everybody. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at MetsMariseOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. As I said, Happy New Year, first show of... uh, 2018, and uh, joining me to kick off the new year, an old friend, somebody that we haven't heard from in a while, it's our old buddy Howard Megdow. He, uh, you know, you guys remember him, Will Pond's Folly, uh, The Cardinal Way, a great book he recently came out with a couple of years ago, uh, ran for GM of the Mets at one point in a book uh, covering women's sports, 
right now and uh, has really moved up the media ranks and, and self-made. If you want to look at somebody who is a self-made member of the media, Howard Megdell is that guy. So he'll be joining me in a couple of minutes. And uh, what are we going to talk about? I know that you guys are tired of it, uh, but it's so relevant because it continues to get talked about. But the Mets way, you know, they have the Cardinals way. And Howard wrote a book about the Cardinals way. But you have the Mets way. And the Mets way right now uh, seems to be waiting out the market. A very odd. And even Todd Frazier told Kevin Kernan in the New York Post earlier today how odd of a free agency market it is as, you know, you basically have 30 teams sitting around waiting for every player to blink and every player out there waiting for 30 teams to blink, making for the coldest of cold hot stoves, which is pretty appropriate based on the temperatures we've had in the Northeast over the last two weeks, especially this past weekend where out by me it got down to at least my thermometer said 1.8 degrees. So, um, you know, definitely uh, appropriate talk about a cold hot stove with the weather here in the Northeast, which hopefully warms up. Uh, before we get to Howard, I mean, look, there's not a heck of a lot to talk about because I think Howard's going to go over the Mets and what he knows and, and really some stuff that will clarify how the Mets go about doing business. So I'll let Howard take the, the mic on that. But, um, you know, news that's coming out of Mets land, rumors, whatever you may call it. Uh, Howie Kendrick, if that's an option at second base, I think that's a, a solid option for the kind of money they have to spend. Howie Kendrick's a solid hitter, versatile, plays multiple positions. Would prefer him in a backup role. I think that he would be solid in a backup role. Could play the outfield, could play the you know the middle infield. I think he's got some first base as well. You know, at his, this point in his career, he's shown versatility. Maybe he could play, uh, you know, both corners. Uh, you know, I don't see enough of him to know how good he is at both corners. He certainly could play second. You probably could throw him at third. You don't want to assume somebody could play all these positions because there is different skill sets that come with it. Uh, not a great defensive player, but certainly uh, solid enough. And with that bat, I, I think would be a, a decent enough second baseman if that's the direction they want to go. Uh, you heard about Andrew McCutcheon and, and maybe the Mets packaging a deal. I, you know, great hitter. Uh, bounced back year last year. You hear a lot of reports about how he's lost a step and he's on his walk year. So you got to be careful about what you give up because a long-term contract to a player that may be in physical decline in their thirties is always a, a dangerous thing. You don't want to give up the wrong prospect or the wrong player for one year of who knows what you get out of McCutcheon. You hope that because it's his contract year, you'll get the best out of McCutcheon. The issue I have is that McCutcheon's really, if the scouts are correct, and I know he's been playing center field, He's not really a center fielder. He doesn't project defensively as a center fielder. He projects more as a corner. So unless you believe that Michael Conforto is going to be a center fielder, and I'm not quite sure if that's the case. I think he's done an admirable job, Conforto, in center field. But I still think that he, with his arm and whatnot, is is much better as a right fielder, much better as a corner and outfielder. Probably Cespedes and right and Conforto and left would be the best with their respective arms, but as that said, Cespedes doesn't want to play the uh, uh, doesn't want to play right field, and we're not going to get into all that. So, uh, to me, I would be careful. We'll see what the the Pirates want. Uh, you know, Juan Lagares certainly speculatively would, would headline that deal because you'd have to swap out some money to get the uh, to fit McCutcheon in the budget. I would certainly continue to talk with the Pirates if you can get McCutcheon without giving up significant talent that will hurt you because you don't know if you're going to have him more than a year. And uh, you think Conforto can play center, 
Uh, you know, you lose Ligaris, so you lose a center fielder, assuming that Ligaris would go in the deal, and I think he would have to. Uh, I think you investigated, but I don't think you're acquiring a center fielder with McCutcheon. I think you're, uh, you know, acquiring really a, a corner outfielder. And then the final thing, which I tweeted out about over the weekend, was the third base situation. And you have a couple of free agent third basemen whose markets may come down to a situation where either they get a one or two year deal. And maybe they want to showcase their talents and go back out in, in what may be a more robust free agent market next year, but a, a market where maybe the teams are willing to spend a little bit more. I'm not sure, other than if they're squirreling away their money for some big free agents next year, why it would be different. I have a feeling that the new methodical approach is a combination of owners and GMs. GMs being more careful with how they go about their business, owners trying to maybe slow down the increasing salaries. That's always something that you see every so often where salaries start to escalate, teams get nervous, they, they start to go cold in a free agent market, they put uh, the proverbial, for lack of a better word, gun to the head to the player, and as it gets closer, as I said, closer and closer to Valentine's Day and pitchers and catchers reporting, then you start to, you know, they start to see if the players will blink because they want a paycheck. But anyway, you got two third basemen out there, Mike Moustakis and Todd Frazier. Now, everybody's like, oh, Moustakis, Moustakis is an all-star. Moustakis hit, uh, you know, he's 28 years old, he's in his prime, he hit, hit 38 home runs. Um, he's an all-star, member of the, the Royals championship team in 2015. And then you got Todd Frazier, who is a member of the Yankees. And Todd Frazier's a lot less sexy, good defensive player, solid player, local guy. Could hit uh, you know, as many, if not more, home runs than Moustakis. Strikes at a ton, very low batting average, and um, you know more of a solid player. So in a vacuum, one on one, you say to yourself, "Well, you know, you got to go with uh, Mustakis if the old things being equal." And to me, what I'm saying is, and I doubt salary rise that both of these would be equal. I think at the end, Mustakis is going to command, whether it be on a one or a two year deal, a much higher salary. Uh, regardless, to me, I would go with Todd Frazier, and here's why: number one. Uh, he's a local guy, and I think that matters a lot. And you've heard a lot of things about Moustakis where there's been some I, – I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this. This is more from guys like Kevin Kernan. I heard him on WOR a couple of weeks ago. Joel Sherman's written about it extensively where there's some concern around baseball circles about Moustakis in a big market and about his ability to be a leader. And I think the Mets really need solid guys in that clubhouse again. I think they've lost some by losing Kadir, by having right out by losing Granderson, solid veteran guys. That's part of what they need. And I think that Frazier brings that over Moustakis. If you look at the metrics, Frazier and Moustakis, and Moustakis last year has been uh, you know, about a 116 OPS plus, where Frazier's about a 107. Uh, it's not that far apart. Over the course of their careers, Frazier, if you go back to prior to the 2015 World Series run, has been a better player. Uh, Moustakis certainly was a younger player, uh, not younger by a ton, but, I mean, Frazier's three years older. He's in his early 30s. I personally think it's a no-brainer. If you're the Mets, I think from a cost perspective, Frazier's the better option. He's already been successful here in New York with the Yankees. He's from Toms River, New Jersey. Uh, he's going to hit you a ton of home runs. He's going to give you a defensive component. You could put a Struble Cabrera at second base, or better yet, you put him in kind of a super utility role, and, and you limit him to about 350 at-bats. And maybe you could go out and find yourself a second baseman. Well, maybe, you know what? You go with a defensive, see if you can win the position in spring training. Guillerme, Luis Guillerme, uh, who had, uh, you know, has, is known for catching the bat in spring training 
about a year ago. But, uh, you know, maybe you go that route at second base and, and shore up the defense and, and you, you get some power with Frazier and away you go with your infield. So uh, that's really the only news, the things I'd wanted to comment on. I do want to get to Howard. I don't want to make this a, a huge, long monologue, but I think that's something I want you guys to think about. Everyone's going to say Moustakis. Everybody's going to say, oh, Moustakis, because everybody's looking at stats. Everybody's looking at the sexy name. And what I'm looking at is what's the best fit. I'm also calculating and trying to figure out you know, what would be the best clubhouse, best guy. You know, The Mets need solid guys in there, grinders. They need guys that are going to go out and have a mentality and a mindset to win. And uh, certainly you hope that Mickey Callaway, who's been making the media rounds, brings that. But you also um, need some of the guys at the clubhouse to bring that. And I think you lost a lot of that with Neil Walker and Jay Bruce and Granderson. And you, know, you lost Kadire a couple of years ago and David Wright. I mean, it's you know Daniel Murphy, who was a grinder as well. So uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that kind of player. And I think someone like uh, Todd Frazier would bring that. And I think to me, if you give me the choice, if that choice is available and the Mets are into spending that money, have that money, and the desire to bring somebody like that in, I think if it was all equal, let's assume the salaries are equal, I'd go with Todd Frazier over Mike Moustakis every day of the week. All right, let's take a quick break. You're going to hear a short clip before we get to Howard. Howard, the last time we really heard from Howard was uh, 2014 when Bud Selig was doing his farewell tour. And um, you know what? I, I drudged up the clip of Howard and Seal kind of having a little back and forth, something that you probably haven't heard on any radio station, certainly not on SNY. It's nothing proprietary. I mean, it was a press conference, so it's public knowledge. And uh, essentially, Howard questioned Bud Selig back in September of 2014 about why he treated the Mets differently than the Dodgers, and if Selig was concerned about how the Mets are running things. You'll hear Howard's comments, you'll hear Selig's comments, and it'll give you some good segue into the Howard McDell segment, who, as the owner of the Cardinals' way, we're going to ask him, what's the Mets' way? Can Howard give us what the Mets' way is so maybe we can understand how they're going about their business this offseason? You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time with our friends over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and uh, you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be back with Howard Megdell. At Howard Megdale on Twitter, author of The Cardinal's Way, right after this. Um, in 2011, when you denied the Fox TV deal, uh, and when you denied the Fox TV deal in 2011, taking over the Dodgers, thank you. Uh, you cited the slash payroll of the Dodgers and the attempt to use Dodger television resources for owner debt. Yeah. Um, in 2014, the Mets now have a payroll at or below the 2011 Dodgers and have acknowledged using team and television resources for owner debt. Uh, please tell me any specific differences between the two situations that led you to permit the current Mets owners to do this, and please be as specific as possible. Well, I'm not sure I quite understand your question, but let me let me try let me try to answer it, and you tell me you tell me how I did. Um, there are big differences. I, I think I've covered this subject many many times, but and I don't want to go back into the whole Frank McCourt. Dodger situation because there were enormous ramifications there, many of which maybe weren't public and many of which I didn't know. As far as I'm concerned, um, I've said this in the past and I'll say it again, I don't have any problem with the way the, uh, with the Mets financing, with what's going on, They're, as far as all of our economic rules, and we have a myriad of them. They are in compliance with them. They're doing fine. The Dodgers were not in compliance with any of them. 
and therefore, um, you know, this idea about spending money is a ridiculous thing. That might be Frank McCourt. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, from my perspective, um, I think that the way the Mets are doing this thing is correct. I know that there, you know, there are a lot of teams in life that spend a lot of money that don't do well either. Right. I'm not trying to be facetious saying that. So uh, I, I just I'm going to see Sandy Alderson, whom I, of course I have great personal affection and respect for, and I I often talk to Sandy as I do all the general managers and people all over baseball about what they're doing. Uh, I went to Houston earlier in the year, and they were all exercised about oh my goodness, we you know this this is a bad team. This is this. This is that. And all of a sudden now they've been playing remarkably well and so on and so forth. So do I have any problem with the Mets finances? None. And just in response to what you were saying, the specifics that you mentioned in 2011 were, uh, I'm sorry they took the microphone away, but... Um, in and the, I didn't ask them to do that. No, I didn't. <laughs> in, tw in 2011, they, you, what you cited was the slashing of payroll. The Dodgers payroll was $83 million at that time. Uh, which is where the Mets yeah, but, but that was only one of many factors. There. Well, well, the other I, I mean, it has nothing to do. I can't, I don't quarrel with people who do payroll things. I've watched it work. I've watched it. I, I'm trying to make a point to you. I've seen people who are very critical of clubs, and all of a sudden, uh, X years later, those clubs are very competitive, and all the detractors are gone. That was not what I did with the Dodgers. Right, and the other specific, though, that you did mention publicly, the other thing you specifically mentioned was the using of team money for owner debt, which is something that the Mets have acknowledged having done. So what I'm again asking is what specifically, if you can name anything that is different between, because those are the only two things you cited at the time, anything different? There are a lot of things different, but, but, but let me just try to boil it down. I think I've answered it, but let me do it again. They were out of compliance with every one of our internal economic rules. The Mets are in, in compliance with all of them. We're back, and as promised, joining me, old friend of the show, Howard Megdell. You guys know him. He's been around a long time. Wilpons Folly, uh, recently the Cardinals way, doing some pretty cool stuff at Summit Hoops. Lock, at Locked On WBB, we'll have to have him talk a little bit about women's sports. And uh, what we're talking about here is the Mets. Howard, long time no talk, man. Nice having you on again. Uh, unfortunately, we're talking about the same stuff that we've been talking about <laughs> probably for a decade now. Well, well I mean, at least we're not talking about Willie Randolph the way we did when, when, when we first started podcasting. Or, January, or Jerry Manuel or, um, you know, yeah, many of the other true. things that we talked about. Or Although we had some to debate. About Guillermo Moto, some spirited debates about the DH uh, as well, uh, for sure. So, um, you know, it seems like yesterday that I remember you uh, were at City Fields probably about three, four years ago, and you were challenging Bud Selig about the Mets' finances. This was a year before the Mets went to the World Series. And uh, with the Mets going to the World Series, things quieted down. You know, obviously nothing really changed except they – they had some good, young, cost-controlled players, namely pitchers, and they are able to spend a little bit of money on the backs of those pitchers. Now the Bills come home to do, and the same old story's back in full force, which is 
you know, what do the Mets have to spend? You hear all sorts of different things. Jim Bowden today saying, hey, you know, the Mets are in on a big free agent. Uh, Joel Sherman has numbers. Everybody's a forensic accountant. Uh, I know it's been a while. I know you're not following it as much as you used to be. But, you know, jump into the fray here. What are your thoughts uh, since you, you wrote a book about all this? Well, look, you know, the the fact that nobody knows what they have to spend is something that has been very common up to and including the Mets front office for the better part of the last decade. And so, you know, the inherent frustration that people feel, and it's understandable, uh, is only exacerbated by the fact that there have been any number of reasons why the Mets should have gotten out from under the Bernie Madoff uh, shadow and been back to spending, look, forget, like the Yankees, this there's no reason why they shouldn't spend like the Yankees. They're in the same market. They have a ballpark that was taxpayer-funded that opened the identical year. They own their own network. In fact, own a greater share now of their own network than the Yankees own since uh, the Steinbrenners cashed out uh, a lot of yes. Uh, so there's no reason why that would be a bad comparison. But even if you compare them to the Dodgers or the Phillies, quite frankly, or the Boston Red Sox or a large number of teams, the Mets are not spending at a level commensurate with their market or even the larger markets around. When, when you look at what they were spending last year at this so-called high point and why it gets sort of defined unchallenged as a high point when it was, first of all, even by the most generous count-everything accounting, it was approximately 12th in Major League Baseball among payrolls. Again, New York first. Mets own their own network, taxpayer-funded stadium, et cetera, et cetera, coming off of two postseason appearances, including the trip to the World Series. Uh, both of those things are incredibly lucrative, and they were 12th by a reckoning that includes David Wright's salary, uh, of which they did not have to pay some 75% uh, because it was insured, and David Wright, as you know, did not play very much. And so they are cutting significantly from that point. That point was already significantly below what is realistic and reasonable to expect well-capitalized owners in this market with this team to be spending. Now, the fact that they are going well below that uh, is just remarkable and reinforces that despite the fact that over the past five, six years, specifically five, six years ago, SNY itself doubled in value, allowing them to borrow further, by the way. That's how they ended up using that windfall. And over this past period of time, they've gone to the postseason multiple times. Major League Baseball has been uh, essentially raining money on its owners. Major League Baseball advanced media sale uh, gives people between the estimates I've seen are between 50 and $68 million simply by being owners of a Major League Baseball team and breathing, you get that money. And that they're not doing that, there are a lot of reasons why they may be doing it. Uh, it's been a few years, and they're not currently in active litigation, so that really limits the amount of publicly available information. But, uh, you know, we'll get to the other side of the ledger why they're not spending. But the fact that they are not is hugely problematic in and of itself for all of those reasons. Yeah, and if I'm correct, there's a made-off payment due this year, right? I mean, that's part yeah. of it. There's the, the debt on City Field. Uh, so when Steve Phillips well, comes well, so out, let, I'm let, sure you... Well, 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, You're the expert. Say, let, let, let's just start, like, the, the knowns, all right? Here's what we know. There's a twice annual debt balloon payment on city field. They have to pay it to the city uh, every June, every December. It's about $21.5 million per payment, so $43 million per year. Off the top, they're going to have to pay that. Not that unusual. Other teams have some similar situations with their, uh, with their stadiums as well. But, okay, you got that. You've got the enormous debt they took. And, and why do they have that debt? They have that debt against the team, against SNY. Now it's been consolidated into a single, uh, a single lender, in this case Bank of America. And the reason they have it is when Bernie Madoff went poof in the night, they suddenly had $700 million in Madoff accounts they thought they had that they no longer had. Worse still, they had borrowed against their Madoff accounts. They, you know, all kinds of double dipping where they would get gains from the Madoff account and they would reinvest the gains in the Bernie Madoff account. I mean, it was just, just endless. So it was Amazing. a huge amount of their capital that disappeared overnight. What do you have to do? You have to borrow against what you have. Uh, in order to maintain the financing. Uh, so they did. They borrowed against their majority stake in SNY. They borrowed against the majority stake in the Mets. Uh, ultimately, they sold shares. But they, um, you know, the debt from those two things at, um, you know, during the period of time, 2013, 2014, it was somewhere north of $80 million. Uh, they, my understanding, just have significantly more debt than they did. Um, they were able to kick the can down the road. Uh, they added to it a little bit, um, and the net result is you add that to the $43 million. Off the top, this is before you get into any of the 2018 specific things. This is just every year they have effectively $120, $130 million they have to come up with before dollar one gets spent on anything else. So what that really means is that's about the size of their payrolls the last few years. Right. And you take the right money. Yeah. Out of last year's $155 million, that's effectively what you're talking about. If you want to figure out why the Mets aren't spending like the Yankees, they are. They're just spending half of it on debt and half of it on their players instead of all on their players the way the Yankees do. And, and not even the Yankees. I mean, you know, to, to get to where the Yankees are, the Yankees are $190, 200 $210 If they were debt-free and well-capitalized owners could well be, uh, you could see the Mets spending like the Dodgers and going right past the luxury tax the way they did. And by the way, in case you were wondering whether that's helpful or not, take a look at the postseason every single year since the new Dodger ownership came in and started spending, and you'll see the Dodgers are in that postseason. So it makes a difference. 2018 specifically, you've got a couple of things. Like you mentioned, you've got Madoff payment coming due. Um, the reason why that's significant, even though it's relatively small compared to the other payments that we're talking about, is that Fred and Saul have to come up with that personally. Uh, and so that's a big deal and you know, not as easy to do. Uh, there's also the fact, and I don't know the answer to this. Somebody should find out, but I don't know the answer to this. When the Mets sold minority shares in their team, mm-hmm. it was yep. with the following provision. It was for five years. And after five years, the minority owners had the right to cash out. Uh, They get their money back plus 3%. That's a lot of money, depending on who does it. Now, a lot of those shares. So do you think Anthony Scaramucci is going to – do you think the Mooch is going to call in his $20 million? Isn't he one of those uh, minority owners? 
By the way, he's a follower of Mike Silva. He's a follower of Mike Silva, and he very well may listen to the show. So you could have a direct – I don't know why he's following me. And I know he, he's a part owner of the Mets. So for the record, Howard, if you have anything bad to say about Scarabucci, here's your chance. I about as close as you get. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to brag. He actually follows me on Twitter as well. <laughs> there you go. He, I thought I he, had it. So maybe he he's following right, anybody. Right, right, around, right around the time he bought into the team, actually, amusingly enough. But look, oh, I don't know. Does Omar want his, want his stake back? Does the 1-800-Flowers sure. dial Who knows? But the point is, if any of them do – then the Mets are gonna, you know, uh, gonna have to come up with that money as well. So, are they guarding against that? And is there something else? There very well could be. It's, it's, these are, and and that's the frustrating point. Is a lot of that is unknown. There are limitations to what the public can find out when Mets ownership isn't currently being sued by the trustee for the Madoff victims or by Lee Castrogini. You know, these are, that is. Uh, the window that we had into it above and beyond um, anything else. It wasn't some sort of, you know, illicit set of leaks. This was all publicly available information. I I just recently moved and I took with me this enormous stack of testimony and papers and, um, and, and exhibits as well. I just couldn't bring myself to part with them. Number one. And number two, it was just the most astonishing thing. So I'm thinking, Holy cow. This stuff is still relevant today, even now. Amazing. And so, if but but we can't find that out uh, off the top of our heads or by using publicly available information. Enterprising reporters ought to find out because it's the whole ball game, uh, if you forgive the pun, as to why the Mets do what they do. It, it, everything happens through the prism of ownership's compromised financial situation and realistically the other people that should be very interested in finding this out and fixing it are major league baseball but instead they're too busy getting uh, franchises in the hands of people who are essentially coming in with the plan to do precisely the same thing in miami right and you look at the debt rules of baseball and this is you you were going back you know you had a little and it's never really been published because it was it was you writing about it but i heard the audio of you going back and forth with Bud Selig back in 2014 when he was doing his farewell tour. And, you know, mm-hmm. Bud and all the different stakeholders in baseball basically saying, hey, the Wilpons didn't do anything illegal like what Frank McCourt did. Um, now, the question is, you know, right. with how secretive baseball is and how corrupt baseball can be over the course of its 100-plus years history, we can, you know, cite example after example. Are the Mets in violation of the debt rules? Are we able to find that out? I mean... Probably not, right? Yeah, Baseball's I, a private, you know, I, antitrust exemption. Mets are a private organization. Right. Uh, Manfred is a, a Selig disciple. But, but uh, could it be part of that? I, no, I, I mean, MLB has these rules. And so the question is not are the Mets in violation of them. The Mets have been in violation of those rules every day for the last 10 years. The question is whether MLB is going to enforce it. And uh, to be frank, they are far more interested in enforcing it uh, on some teams than they are on others. Now, whether Rob Manfred feels the same way that Bud Sealer does about this, it's hard to know because the two have not been uh, working under similar circumstances. For instance, Manfred was not the commissioner when Major League Baseball gave a bridge loan to Fred Wilpon just to get him through the winter of 2011 into 2012. Would Manfred do that? At a certain point, Major League Baseball, even, and this was before Seal had left, 
said to the Mets, look, you're going to have to sink or swim on your own. They were ultimately saved uh, primarily by the fact that shortly after uh, the, the trustee for the Madoff victims made the determination that you can't get blood from a stone and allowed them uh, effectively a hardship settlement in March of 2012, that SNY uh, rode the wave of the RSN boom, doubled in value, and suddenly, instead of having nothing to borrow against, they had an additional $1 billion uh, in equity in SNY that they were able to borrow against. Uh, Had that gone down differently chronologically, everything else was the same, but SNY doubled in value a year before then the Madoff, uh, the trustee for the Madoff victims would have had an additional $650 million in equity to be able to tap into uh, for the Mets. And it would have been logical for him to go to trial and go get it. $650 million, by the way, shorthand. 65% is what the uh, Wilpon Katz uh, ownership stake is in SNY. So with, of that billion dollars in equity, they had $650 million. Well, instead... They've essentially used that over the past five, six years to stay afloat. And that's where we are today. Now, if someone hasn't read the book Wilpon's Folly, I have uh, Howard McDowell with me, at Howard McDowell on Twitter. They should. And if you read that, I mean, you laid out what could have been, how close they were to losing the team. But David Mm Einhorn was being brought in as uh, an owner. Uh, And there was that day, and I can't remember which year it was, but he had visited the ballpark and the fans almost – treated him like the Messiah, the Savior. And uh, you outline in the book how Fred Wilpon, I guess, from that incident, then there was another incident, they got a a conference out on the West Coast where uh, Fred started to say, hey, you know, this guy's going to steal the team from me. Um, You know, he's a venture capital guy. You know, these guys, these venture capital guys, you know, they don't get into deals. Let's just be clear. Let's go back because I want to be clear about this. It was not that Fred thought that he was going to steal the team. This was there was nothing cloak and dagger about it. David Einhorn was willing to give a minority uh, money for a minority stake that turned into a majority stake. That was the reason why he was willing to do it, and it was a serious outlay of money. It was two hundred million dollars that was going to help save the Wilpon. So go back to that period of time. That's before SNY's value took off. That's at a point where they are really in significant financial trouble in 2012 and trying to figure out not just, you know, geez, how can we hold on to the team, but how are we going to survive financially, period. And in a way that, uh, quite frankly, was ludicrous and self-defeating, Fred Wolpon made an agreement with David Einhorn, and I haven't seen the agreement. I, I know, I, it was spelled out to minority share that would uh, ultimately become a majority state within this period of time. Not dissimilar, by the way, to the deal that Mikhail Prokhorov just made uh, selling the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, that, that was understood. That was the clear. David Einhorn even made sure he was pre-cleared by Major League Baseball. And then Fred went behind David Einhorn's back to Bud Sealer to try and say, you know, see if you can make sure he's not cleared to buy a majority stake and effectively rely on his on his friend to um, basically wanted to cheat David Einhorn out of the team. Yeah, he wanted, he wanted he wanted to, to take Einhorn's money, to. make him believe. Right, exactly, exactly. It was. And, uh, and, and, I mean, when and, you read this so, book, by the way, so Fred did when not, you read this but, book, but by the way, so just just to conclude that story, 
Fred did not pull out. David Einhorn pulled out. David Einhorn said, forget this. I don't want any part of uh, this business arrangement. And he's the one who left. And at that point, there was a real fear, uh, you know, in the upper reaches of Mets ownership that uh, they had lost their last best chance to avoid uh, things like bankruptcy. Why do you think Sandy Alderson sticks around? If Sandy Alderson obviously is the one that's and, and, and you, you wrote a book about the Cardinals. I want to get to that because I know that it's hard to summarize, but you probably learned a lot about organization building with that process. I mean, the fascinating mm-hmm. stuff in that. Um, Sandy Olsen's a guy who's not going to be hurting for money, and he's not going to be hurting for a job. And there's a lot of things you could do within the game, if not be general manager. Um, you know, certainly I think John Rico's taking a bigger role. I think Sandy's, you know, his health and his age, and who knows how much longer he'll do this. Um, right. You know, does he stick around because MLB's like, hey, we need you in there to keep things, you know, tight? Do you think he's gotten to the point where maybe this is a challenge? You know, uh, what do you think? I mean, you obviously you know you're not in his mind, Such but you're close I've enough. Right. I, this is you the know. best explanation I've gotten from uh, people close to Sandy Alderson, uh, and 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 that is that Sandy Alderson, number one, he realizes this is his last rodeo. I mean, there's not another GM job in the offing after this. Uh, not at this stage in his career, um, you know, not, not anything to do with the work he's done with the Mets, which, quite frankly, into the teeth of uh, this uh, absurd financial situation, uh, not just, you know, relative to market share, but just the fact that he doesn't typically know how much he can spend in any given winter, um, that he managed to build a team that went to back-to-back postseasons. And that should not be uh, dismissed lightly because, he did it with a degree of difficulty that most other GMs have never faced. Uh, but so number one, Alderson understands this is probably the last one. Number two, he's stubborn as hell. He is someone who digs in, who sticks with something. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to sort of go cliche on you, but it's very much the Marine in him is how one person explained it right. to me. And so, you know, this is a guy who does not give up. And so you combine those two things and, you know, to the extent that he certainly made his peace with things like Jeff Wilpon deciding to call him in the middle of a game and now he's got to fire the hitting coach, um, you know, or, and, and, and things of or, that or sort. Or keep the manager and the pitching coach around probably five years Correct. longer than they should have been around. I mean, which is, well, is, you know, even if you don't – listen, and you and I, have, we've talked about Dan Warthen in the past, and I, and I, and I know you have oh. very strong feelings about Warthen, but oh. – Leave the aside. two of them. This has been the best. By the way, just to interrupt you, right. we lost Craig Cart yeah. and we lost Terry Collins, Mike Francesa, and Dan Worthen in a, in a month period. You can't not get a better month in Mike Silva's sports radio life than those four going out of it. No, Let me tell you, that, you know, you, I, it only goes up from here, you know? <laughs> so I, I actually, I, I, I've been very highly of Terry Collins. It's, it's, it's another conversation for another time, and I think Dan Worthen's, uh, Dan Wazen's tenure is a mixed one. But here's what I'll say about Dan Wazen. He managed to survive not just a managerial turnover, but a general manager's turnover. And I would, I would ask you to think back to any recent memory other than, I mean, geez. Dave Rigetti, you know, that's it, right? Maybe Mazzoni. Yeah, I mean, whoever, like, and again, how did that happen? You know, I mean, it's a very rare thing that, a pitching coach survives a general manager change. And it happens when an owner is making those types of calls and uh, substituting his own 
lack of expertise for the expertise of the general manager. And it's just terrible process. And so you mentioned the Cardinals. Just the idea that Bill DeWitt would ever try and impose a pitching coach on, uh, you know, John Mazalak or, or, or anyone instead of, you know, his theory was always you hire really smart people to do the jobs um, and, and, and you let them do their work. And Bill DeWitt is a very active owner. He's very interested in what's going on. He's very involved in what's going on in the sense that he's asking questions and he wants to know about it. And, you know, it, it's his team. You know, he gets the minor league reports every day. And he and he's also a baseball man. He's the son of the man uh, who was the first farm director to Branch Rickey. So he's even gotten in his blood. And he doesn't do anything like that. And and no CEO worth anything would interfere in that way. And so, you know, that Sandy Alderson is putting up with that in part is because it comes with the job. It just comes with the job, and he understands that it comes with the job. And if it didn't, so is that Omar? Drive him away is that by Omar Minaya? Twenty sixteen. Is that yeah, why he's okay with Omar Minaya? You know, is that really exactly. what you would say? Is it that? I, so I can't. I don't want to speculate about that specifically and, and speak to that specifically. But what I can tell you is, it didn't surprise me that that was the response that we saw from him, simply because this is nothing new. Unbelievable! It never. It's 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 really fascinating if in, if you get into it. Howard Megdell, uh, the sure. Cardinal Way author, Will Punt's Folly, uh, ran for GM of the Mets many moons ago before Sandy <laughs> Alderson. Uh, you know, a litany of things. You know, Jay Horowitz's best friend. If you want to go really back uh, far enough, joining the oh, year, uh, Cardinal Way. If you had to summarize for those in the audience that may not have read the book, baseball fans, maybe because they're Mets fans or whatever, they haven't read the book. What were the two or three big learnings you took away from that project? Because you, you pretty much got a, a front row seat to how organizations are run and built, and uh, not many people amazing. get that chance. I mean, I, I know you so can't say was, everything, but, but give it two or three things that, and, and things that maybe they could connect where, hey, you know, imagine if the Mets did this, or, or just how an organization that has had the success the Cardinals have had, how they do things. So – Here's what I'll say. The, the number one thing that I think makes the Cardinals different from any other team in the history of baseball, and I think you could argue in the history of professional sports, there is an intellectual through line from the Cardinals of the late 19-teens, early 1920s, to the Cardinals of today. Uh, Branch Rickey, uh, an absolute genius, before he ever signed Jackie Robinson, was already a Hall of Famer because he spent 25 years as the president of the St. Louis Cardinals from 1917 through 1942. Just about every basic baseball idea you can think of came through Ricky. Ricky came up with the idea of the farm system, literally invented, built the first farm system, the prototype, into the teeth of Major League Baseball that didn't want it. And so his ability to build within, from within and his ability to rely even on sabermetrics, not that it was called that back then. This was before uh, Society for American Baseball Research was even in existence. But those two threads are what ultimately led to the way the Cardinals have in many ways dominated National League Baseball over the first now two decades of the 21st century. And it's not just those ideas in the abstract, it's Bill DeWitt Jr. 
owning the team, the son of the first farm director for Branch Rickey. It's these very ideas being put, and then the farm system being operated through the ideas of George Tissel. George Tissel, a longtime coach for them, um, he was signed as a player originally in 1940, coached right up through his death in 2008. So this is a guy who predates Stan Musial's first at-bat at Sportsman's Park and went well into the Adier Molina years as well. He's a guy who worked with Jeff Lunau, who helped revolutionize the farm system when he was there. He worked with Mo. He worked with all of these people. And between he and Red Shandiest, uh, who was – who has been and is still a significant part of that organization, uh, a guy who uh, coaches the major league team, but is also he's talking to everyone during spring training as well. That combination of shared institutional knowledge that dates back to Ricky. Shandy's another guy Ricky signed and Ricky trained. It, it just, it is fundamental. So I, it's not three, it's just one, but that absolute intellectual through line that goes from here to there. And just the more I researched it, the more people I talked to, the more I discovered it. Um, and it just continues right up into this day with so many coaches who are operating, you know, through this manual that George Kissel came up with, but the manual is really beside the point. It was the, a, a whole way of thinking and you just saw it at every turn Players, coaches, I, I, I don't mean to go on about this, but there's a guy named Alex Mejia. He's at the fringes of their, maybe he's on the 40-man roster now, maybe he's not. But Mejia and I are talking, and Mejia was telling me about the 18 different kinds of ground balls that George Kissel teaches a shortstop to be ready for. And I'm watching him out, there are maybe 500 people in the Florida State League, and I'm watching him field grounders at shortstop and doing it. So they don't just talk about tradition the way the Yankees do. There's an actual tradition they draw on, and it was absolutely fascinating to see. So, yeah, yeah, the Mets probably should have done that. A couple of quick hits here before we wrap up. So if you had $20 million left to spend, Howard, you, were the, you won that campaign as GM of the Mets, and you were right now wringing your head. <laughs> Saying how you know Fred, you know you got to give me some more money. And Fred's like, oh, I only got twenty million. How would you spend it? That I I don't even know where to begin. It's not a bad. I'm team. not sure. This, not a bad I mean, team. This, this is a team. This is a team with so many massive holes. What are my goals? I've got twenty million for this year. What do I have for next year? Do I have the job through twenty twenty and I can build over a three year period? I mean, that's the problem with isolating these things into a single binary yes or no, right? Do you do you sign Chris Young uh, to play the outfield if you're the Mets? You, you know, Sandy Alderson got a lot of abuse for that. Well, you tell me, Chris Young or who? You've got $7 million to spend on Chris Young right then, but you don't know if you're going to have $7 million a month from now. You know you need an outfielder. What do you do? I mean, it, it's just an impossible situation. It's why... I'm real hard-pressed to criticize Alderson for his missteps. Not that he's perfect. Not that a GM uh, doesn't make mistakes. They all do. Uh, Mazalak makes mistakes. But the difference is in St. Louis, for instance, he and Bill DeWitt have figured out what the budget's going to be one, three, five years out. So he knows exactly what he's going to be doing in terms of spending. And uh, there are adjustments, and you can change and go to ownership and figure it out. But 
he can make a five-year plan. Sandy Alderson can't make a five-day plan. And so when you when you ask, how do you spend $20 million? Well, you tell me. I have $20 million this year. Can I spend it $20 million annually? Can I spend on a player who I can give, you know, seven one forty two? Or is this a player who I've got to figure out a way to sign a one-year make-good pillow contract for $20 million? I mean, there's no uh, real answer to these questions, which is why, of course, uh, you know, any general manager would have essentially a near-impossible task. So you've moved on to some other projects. Why don't you let the listeners know a little bit about what you're doing? And uh, look, if you ever want to get back into the sauce, man, I think they'd love to have you chasing the <laughs> will ponds and i mean nothing was better than jay horowitz running away from you or listen to the day i die when i was listening to you fight with bud Selig, i'm like ah oh, finally somebody stood up to him finally somebody <laughs> stood up to him and it was like everybody i was talking to some people who were at that at that event and like oh how can you how can howard do that uh you know it was bud's farewell i'm like but nobody ever challenged him for the whole time you know collusion one collusion two come on what but a, what anyway, a strange all- thing what a strange thing, the idea that he's at a press conference and that people from the press who haven't gotten answers from him about basics of how the team is run and decisions that he made as commissioner shouldn't ask him that question. And just to be clear, if Bud Selig had responded to numerous requests for comment through the years and numerous interview requests, it wouldn't have been necessary to ask him at his quote-unquote farewell press conference. But Bud Sheila got asked a lot of questions at a lot of different places. I am not one of these people who is under the uh, mistaken impression that if you are willing to hold a press conference, you get to set the terms of debate. That's not how it works here in America. So I, I, I am uh, amused and mortified in equal measure there are members of the press who might feel that way, and and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure they, you know, uh, we don't have to get into specifics as to who. But no, uh, we can get that current, off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But as far as current projects go, so I'm I'm the editor in chief over at the summit, uh, summithoops.com. Two T's in honor of Pat, and we cover the world of women's basketball. Uh, we try to cover it the way it should be covered, which is to say, to address the enormous gap between the way men's hoops are covered and the way women's hoops are covered. And we have, accordingly, we have bracketology for uh, women's basketball up right now. We had a, a reporter down in Atlanta talking to Muffet McGraw uh, about a terrific Notre Dame team. We're going to have a mock draft coming up this week. And uh, I would encourage you guys to check it out. Uh, and I'm also uh, the uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief of a site called 50 States of Blue, uh, where we are covering uh, from a progressive perspective um, the uh, news of uh, the United States of America, which is, um, you know, an interesting place to be and an interesting time to be doing it. So I would encourage you strongly to check out 50statesofblue.com as well. Howard, don't let them ever say anything but you are a very, very stable genius, all right? Just remember that. So. <laughs> I, yes, I am, like, smart. Thank you. I had, Thank a, you I had to end much. on that. You know, what a great segue <laughs> to end this segment. So, listen, uh, great stuff. Uh, we do miss you here on the baseball side, but you're doing some really good stuff. And I'll give, leave you one last, uh, well, you want to say pun maybe? You are like the yeah. Tom Glavin of media. You continue to 
reinvent yourself at every juncture. So I'm glad to see you uh, Tom, doing well. Tom Glavin, a, a guy they had to scrape the bottom of the Madoff accounts just to pay a bonus one year. I will say one yeah. other thing, by the way. Uh, I, I know a, a team you have a passion familiarity with. I'll be over at Madison Square Garden tomorrow night to do a story on uh, St. John's and uh, Patrick Ewan returning to the Garden for, uh, uh, for Vice Sports. So I'll be there as well. Be well, my friend. Glad to catch up, and uh, we'll see what the Masters have to say about your return to uh, – well, you've done a few other podcasts, but your return That's to Mets Finances. All right, my friend. I Thanks appreciate a lot. it, Mike. Always great talking to you. And that's Howard Megdell, at Howard Megdell on Twitter, and really, really good stuff, and uh, really, uh, really have a, a good time catching up with him. It's It's been a long time, and Howard, you know, I'll say this, Howard um, has moved on and done some incredible things for someone who essentially is self-made, came into this similar to me, um, and uh, has really leveraged a lot of different opportunities to make himself into a... Uh, a really well-known individual in baseball. Now he's tackling women's sports. And one thing I'll say about Howard is he's always tried to make a difference and be at the forefront of something new. And I think he's certainly doing that with his projects uh, right now and uh, very knowledgeable in basketball. And if you haven't had a chance to read Wilpon's Folly or The Cardinal Way or any of his other books, definitely check it out and uh, check him out on Twitter at Howard Magdal. So anyway, uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, wrap up, schedule, final thoughts right after this. Hey, Mets fans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. Final thoughts. Great segment with Howard Magdell there. Hope you enjoyed it. Very informative. You know, I didn't have much to say. I mean, Howard just takes the ball and runs with it and uh, and good stuff. So, anyway, just wanted to wrap up here a couple of minutes before we say goodbye. So, uh, you know, again, kind of playing it a little bit differently. We're still going to try to do shows every Sunday. Keep checking it out. Keep going to my feed at Mike Silver Media. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com. They always publish the show, usually within less than 24 hours of me posting it on my iTunes account, on SoundCloud, on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, so keep going there. I, uh, you know, the next show I'm trying to lean now. The Hall of Fame announcements are going to be in about 10 to, you know, two weeks maybe maybe a little less. We definitely are going to do a Hall of Fame show. In between, I'm hoping that some activity happens or something happens that we can have a show possibly this Sunday. If not this Sunday, then uh, you know we'll see where the week brings us. And I, I guess I'm going to try to bring you the best and most up-to-date content. That's why we're, we're pushing these out a day or two. And with the NFL games on Sunday and some of the media members I'd like to get on, it's a little harder to get them on when they want to watch or cover the NFL playoff games leading up to the Super Bowl. But it's amazing. We're just, you know, we're less than a month away from pitchers and catchers, or about a month away from pitchers and catchers. The Super Bowl is less than a month away. 
there's a ton of free agents out there, and there's a hell of a not, lot not going on. So, you know, the Mets being criticized, rightfully so, and Howard gave you a lot of reasons why there may be problems with them building a roster and spending money. But uh, to be fair, nobody's spending money out there. So very interesting offseason. Haven't seen an offseason like this maybe uh, since the 80s where, uh, you know, you had collusion. Maybe that's an overstatement, but you haven't seen something like this in quite some time. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I think things will, will, will play themselves out uh, soon enough. And, and hopefully the Mets, like I said, in the open – are going to be in play for some solid free agents. I don't think they're going to be in play for Moustakas. I still think that that market will get away from them, but a, a Frazier, uh, you know, maybe a Jay Bruce, something like that. And if you listen to Jim Bowden, uh, he says the Mets are going to be in on at least one of these guys, one major free agent. So we'll see what happens. Hey, we're out of time. Of course, I want to thank Howard Megdal. Check him out at Howard Megdal on Twitter. Check out his book, The Cardinal's Way, Will Ponce Folly. Uh, you know, he, he's done a ton of work, so check him out. Go over to his uh, Twitter feed. I want to thank the good folks over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Of course, you can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Stay warm. See you soon. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.